Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get accountability and you get better communication and discussion of the passages you've read that week. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and strugglers. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Genesis on the radio show, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we finished our transition from Noah to Abraham in Genesis uh, 10, 11, and into 12. We covered most of the opening classic passage of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, how Abraham leaves and goes at the command of God, and how he is to be blessed and to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Today's show, we're going to cover the rest of Genesis 2. Lord, be with us today as we read your scriptures and open them up. We pray that we would understand you and ourselves and what you want from us and for us from this passage today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 12 today. We covered most of Genesis 12, 1 through 3 last week, and that show, along with all the other ones we've ever done, are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Facebook. But we have a few things to say about 1 through 3 and want to move into verse 4, which is his obedience. So I'm going to start reading today in 1 through 4a of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him. As we talked about last week, the blessing is to Abram, but the blessing is supposed to extend to us as well and that we are to be a blessing to others, right? We're never blessed just for its own sake. We're always blessed in order to bless God and to bless others. But the passage also alludes to Christ. In Acts 3, 24 through 26, Peter uses this moment to say, Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many have, as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So this was initially for the Jews, but it was even then supposed to be for the entire world. Or think about how Paul writes about it in Galatians 3, 8, 9, and 14. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So ultimately all this is fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, looking forward from Abraham up to Jesus to Pentecost 
and beyond that to how we've been redeemed. Notice also that the focus was blessing Abram and Israel. There's no curse for other people unless they mess with Israel. And so this combination tells us that being chosen, as Abram and Israel are, is more about privilege and responsibility, but certainly not at the complete exclusion for others. All have access to God. We'll see this in notable stories like Rahab and the Gibeonites and all the people that Abraham and Israel will encounter. God still wants to work with other people, but for now, he's going to specify and specialize his work with the people of Israel. But yet, it's not ultimately about blessing for its own sake. Again, it's for them to bless all peoples and ultimately to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now to verse 4, we have Abraham's obedience. This is picked up by the writer of Hebrews in 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So a number of things to say about obedience and the combination of God's calling and Abram's obedience. First thing is that for such a pivotal moment for Abram and for world history, this is such an understated verse. There's one remarkably short sentence, and Abraham for this is the epitome of faith and its development. So as we talked about in in the account of Abraham so far, don't skip over this just because it's so short. When it says Abram left as the Lord had told him. This is a remarkable, heart-pounding moment that the scriptures treat in just a few words. So don't miss the drama and the importance of this moment. Along the same lines, note that Abram could have said no. He has to participate within God's gracious provision here. There's no questions, at least none that are asked and recorded in the text. He's wonderfully compliant or he's silently obedient. Now that might cause us to be concerned because we had similar, uh, a similar picture of Noah, but we'll see soon enough that Abram is going to be much more than that. But he hears the call and he responds to the call. I think for us as well, we, we have both of these, right? Do we hear the call? And if we hear it, do we respond to it? And we haven't talked about Sarai much, but she's along for the ride apparently. Does she have faith as well? Notice that she's probably receiving an indirect call through Abram. And so now she has to depend and trust in his character in order to follow along. The other story we'll talk about today later in chapter 12 will bring that into question. But it does get into the interesting idea of indirect revelations. When when God has told someone else something, to what extent can we believe in the revelation that has been given to someone else? We're told that Abram is obedient, but we're not told about his motives. Leon Cass wrestles with this at some length. He says, God knew his customer. Does Abram go because he's a God-hungry man who's moved by the awe-inspiring commanding voice? Or does he go because he's a greatly ambitious man who is enticed by the promises? One cannot be sure. After wrestling with this, Cass says the latter has to be uh, the one with more weight, that a fear-based approach, that if that's what Abram is responding to largely, that's not going to be sufficient for God's goals going forward. And so he believes it's the greatly ambitious man who's responding to the promises, and wherever those are not where they need to be, those can be redeemed by God over time. 
Cass continues, God does not merely command Abram. He also appeals directly to Abram's situation and to Abram's likely longings and ambitions, land, the aspiration to be a founder of a great nation, and a great name. The voice addresses him not only personally but knowingly and with concern. Marvelously, from Abram's point of view, the speaker is seen directly into Abram's heart. What kind of being is it that speaks but is not seen and more wondrous can see into my invisible soul to know precisely what I want? Let's take a walk with this awesome voice and see what it can do. So Abram completes the rejection of Babel and heads off. So it's speculative in part, but Abram, as with us, is responding partly in fear, reverence, awe, and the like, and in part in connection to the promises, the blessings that are out there. In common language, we might say something like sticks and carrots, right? That there's a fear-based motive and there's a blessing-based motive. And both of them have their purposes. Ultimately, blessing and love are where we want to end up here. But, you know, we don't know where Abram's at at this point. And the text, as Cass notes, is absolutely and happily silent regarding his motives. The larger issue, at least for now, is that Abram answers and he obeys. This also points us forward to the ultimate test for Abram, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, where his motives are clearly revealed when Abram chooses between the gift and his chief gift. But for now, we don't know. Cass also notes the pedagogical use of this for the reader. What might lead Abram or us to make this sort of choice? And so the text is also teaching us something, getting us to reflect, and that's what any good story does, right? It doesn't just tell the story, but invites us into it and invites us to to reflect on these greater moral truths and self-reflection and hopefully improvement in the sort of choices that we're going to make. What would my faith look like if God comes at me with a voice? What does my faith look like if God doesn't promise me blessings? What, what do I do with that? Do I still follow God uh, in, the, in that sort of setting? So who is Abraham at this early stage in the story? Well, first, he's descended from Shem and Eber. Shem means name, and Eber means Hebrew. And so he is the prototypical, the first Hebrew. As such, he's the biological and spiritual father of the Jews and us, right? Paul makes that clear in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. And as we're reading along, we would probably look at Abram's decisions as a likely foreshadowing of critical patterns of behavior for his people and again for us. What can we learn about ourselves and God as we read Abram's story? He's also a spiritual and ethical model. Joseph Soloveitchik says he questioned the status quo of his society and searched for God. He obeyed divine commands unhesitatingly, even when they entailed exile and sacrifice. He was drawn to the holy, departing his birthplace for an unknown destination. He's a hero, right? He's a hero of the faith. He's a hero to the Jews. He's a hero to Christians. And so uh, he is a spiritual and ethical model for us to follow in many ways. But he's also a man very much under construction. Borgman notes, Abram and Sarai begin by leaving behind all that is familiar and familial. They head out for an unknown destination, which proves as much of a journey of the soul as a matter of geography. So we need to be careful not to see him through a modern Christian lens. And there's no pressure here for us to see him as a pure hero. And we also don't want to focus too much on Abraham rather than the great God 
that he follows. He was a great man, but more important, God is good. All right, let's read verses four and five now. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Now, the passage is bracketed by verse 4, beginning with he left, and verse 5, ending with they arrived. So he left and they arrived. Verse 4 tells us he's at a relatively old age. Abram would be in Canaan for 100 years. We can probably date this from about 2091 to 1991 B.C. We're told that the people he acquired in Haran, so he grew wealthy there, And people is literally the word in Hebrew, souls. And so these are servants, but they also may be people who are following him and on whom Abraham may have had spiritual influence. Verses 4 and 5 have another interesting pairing. Verse 4 says, Lot went with Abram. Verse 5 says, Abram took Lot with him. So the former is underlining the voluntary response to follow Abram, perhaps a lot like Ruth. Uh, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, his desire to follow Abraham may stem from intense love and loyalty. But the latter is required too, right? Abram has to make the decision to take Lot with him. How old was Lot? We don't know. If Haran died when Lot was young, then this may be equivalent to adoption, and Abram may raise or educate him as a son. Did Abram disobey God by bringing Lot He was supposed to leave his family, but is that literal or is it more figurative? If it's more figurative, then maybe he's still obeying the spirit of the law. And if so, this is the first sign of Abram's greatness and mercy in bringing the orphan Lot along with him. It's also possible that Abram saw him as heir insurance, so to speak. If he was raising him or saw him like a son and they'd been unable to have children, maybe he thought that Lot would be the descendant that would follow into God's blessing. In any case, Lot caused him lots of trouble. Sorry for the bad pun there. But he did provide Abram with two of the reasons that we remember his greatness. But those are stories and topics for another day. All right, this is a good place to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 12 today, and we've reached verses 6 through 9. Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. First, there's a handful of geographical references here. Verse 6 has Morah, which means teaching, and so maybe it's a place where the Canaanites were seeking wisdom. Would Abram try to consult God through this mechanism, or does, does he see it as a convenient place to do so? In any case, as we'll see later, God does meet him there. Verse 7 and 8, we have a reference to Shechem. Big story there, Genesis 34, but it makes a number of appearances in the scriptures. Bethel, or Bethel, 
another key city. Uh, it means the house of God. And then Ai, or I, and its most popular story is in Joshua 7 and 8 after the battle of Jericho, the sin of Achan. Verse 9 mentions the Negev, so here he's moving south, heading toward Egypt, and the next story will be in Egypt, so that's the direction that he's heading. And generally, we're observing that verses 4 through 9, Abram continues to be on the move. Uh, This is not a short, straight, certain journey. We're told in chapter 20, verse 13, that he wanders, and then we we also know from other passages that he's a pilgrim. He's not a citizen of this world. He's looking forward to a better world, and the text is describing that through his journey. Back to verse 6, it mentions that the Canaanites are in the land. So God had promised him land, and it's implied, it's made explicit in verse 7 that the land here would be given to him, but the Canaanites were there. He had been promised a great nation, but his wife was barren. So it's not clear what Abram thinks about these promises at this point. He's been promised things that don't seem to be possible, but maybe he believes, presumably he believes, in the greatness of God. So Abram owned but did not possess the land. The Canaanites possessed it, but they did not own it. Both are sojourners of a different sort. Verse 6 also has, at that time, which is a good use of literary foreshadowing, right? There there will be a time when this is no longer true that the Canaanites are in the land, but for now, it certainly is. And then I like what Yuval Levine says, and this is uh, something quoted by Leon Cass, you know, who else but the Canaanites would be in Canaan? Of course, right? Uh, Well, Abram's there. And so Levine says, God must put a non-Canaanite into the land of Canaan to get away from the simple, natural way of things. To be a Canaanite in Canaan requires no effort, no action, no thought. To be a Hebrew in Canaan will require attention and exertion. God's new way would not succeed among a people who simply let things be as they are. It demands a people willing to become what they have not always been. Great passage here, right? And it certainly applies to Christians as well, that we're called to be in the world but not of the world. 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good deeds and give glory to God. So there's an idea called cultural Christianity, right, where there's a a too close relationship between the world and Christianity. But at its root, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's modeled here by Abram being a non-Canaanite in the land of Canaan and responding to what God has called him to do. Now, verse 7, the Lord appears to him, presumably not in all his glory, must be a relatively modest manifestation. Now, this is more than Abram had received, apparently, back in chapter 12, 1 through 3, which was merely a voice. In verse 7, as it continues, the land is explicitly promised to his offspring. And again, there's no sign of them yet, but it's not promised to him. So we're looking at a longer term promise. It's interesting that children are not explicitly mentioned until here. So verse 2 mentions a great nation, and perhaps he imagined that God would grow the nation through Lot. That option is going to fall apart later. We'll talk about that soon. Or maybe he's thinking it's through evangelism of some sort, but it's not specified. It's easy to remember the text or reread the text in light of things we already know about what comes forward. But what the text reveals at this point 
is actually limited for Abram in terms of the revelation of how this nation would take place. Now, children are still possible. Uh, He's at age 75. Terah had been 70 for his first child, so I don't think that part of it would have bothered him. But but he and Sarah have been childless for some time, and so surely he's thinking of other ways that God might fulfill this promise. In verse 7 and 8, he constructs altars. So those would serve as memorials and meeting places for the worship of God. They're also a sign of submission, faith, and gratitude. He's also making these altars at pagan sites. So he's making a public statement. In a sense, he's planting God's flag in the land of Canaan. It's interesting that there's no record of literal sacrifice, and that's in contrast to what we saw from Cain and Noah. But the reader hopes for a greater figurative sacrifice of pride, independence, and the like. These altars are the only permanent thing for Abraham. He's living in tents. He founds no cities. And so the altars are the things that he fittingly leaves behind. Now, verse 7, he builds an altar at Shechem, and that's in response to God's presence and his promises. At verse 8, he builds an altar, but note that he does not get an answer. And we don't know what his response to this is, but it may well have been disappointment and or confusion. And I think there are analogies to how we operate as well. From an experiential standpoint, why does he not get a response from God? And then there's a theological concern. Is God only local? On that, you know, especially back then when people thought that the gods were local, this may have left Abram with a sense that God is not everywhere or not always watching. But I think more likely we fall back on an experiential answer. And this points to universal themes of thinking God will respond to our formulaic approach to him. That we want God to always respond, to respond in a certain way, how and when we see fit. And if that's the case, it's not God controlling us, it's us controlling God, right? If, If God's a vending machine and we throw down an altar and then things respond a certain way, That's not the sort of relationship that God wants to foster with us. And then verse 8 ends with, called on the name of the Lord. I like what Borgman says here. God has promised Abram a great name, and now Abram invokes the name of the Lord. This is surely an important first step in relinquishing the effort to establish one's own name. If we want a great name and God has promised it, then you have to quit trying to make a great name on your own standards, right, on your own efforts. And so for God to respond, for God to be able to work, it's necessary that Abram call on the name of the Lord, that he give up independence uh, and leave that to God. As Borgman continues, but immediately we read of the fiasco in Egypt. When it comes to everyday challenges, Abram's initiative to preserve and promote himself and his name, even at his wife's expense, proves disastrous. And I think that's another nice application for us, right? He's pretty good at the worship thing, the Sunday morning piece of this in our terms. But what about the rest of the week? How's it going to go day to day? Will he really be able to let God take care of business when he's away from the altar? So let's read verses 10 through 14. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. 
Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. So times get tough, and what's Abram going to do? What's his faith going to look like in the midst of difficulty? Verse 10 has a severe famine and a trip to Egypt, apparently at Abram's own initiative. From a biblical standpoint, it's interesting that the descendants of Shem are meeting up again with the descendants of Ham. Egypt is a fertile place. The Nile kept the nation fed with water and thus food. And in interesting contrast, Abram has no family and now no food either. He's not particularly fertile at all, but Egypt is. Abram brought his stuff with him into Canaan, but he still must depend on God for provision and ironically on Egypt. And this is a test of Abram's faith sent by God. And it's unrecorded, but we can assume that God didn't mind him going at least that much. Another consideration for Abram's faith is that how do we respond when there are tough times? How do we think about God in this? Of course, Abram's descendants years later in the wilderness will grumble and complain and say things like, you brought me out here for this? God delivers them from bondage. God delivers them from and to great things. And the Israelites' response many times in the book of Exodus is grumbling and complaining. At the end of Habakkuk in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And we don't have record of Abram being joyful, but we do have no record of him complaining and groveling. He will strategize, as we see in this passage and what comes beyond, but the the complaining and carping that mark the Israelites, uh, there's no sense of that here. In verse 11, he focuses on Sarai's beauty, and these are his first recorded words. And that's interesting, especially from the perspective of Genesis, that his words are focused on what he and others see. We've talked about the role of the eye so far in Genesis, and that will continue, that the eye often gets us into trouble, and it's going to get him and the Egyptians into trouble as well. And he is right to be concerned about their beauty. In verse 14, it verifies that this is not just flattery of his wife. It's not just him being subjective and smitten with the wife that he loves, right? That they objectively view her as beautiful and someone to desire. So that leads to the sister strategy in verse 13. And we learn later that actually she is his half-sister in chapter 20, verse 12. And it begs the question, why this half-truth? Right? She is a sister, so it's not a a total lie, but it is a half-truth. It's described in chapter 20, verse 2, and it's described in chapter 20, verse 13 as an ongoing strategy. Now, why are they after Sarai? Is she still quite a looker? Is she multicultural and exotic to them? Does she have other attributes? It's not clear, but Abram is right to be worried. And he's also reasonably concerned that they would kill him to get her. Now, to us, that seems bizarre, but again, think about that culture. And that culture, if she was available and he were the brother, then they would approach him as the one to make negotiations to acquire her as a wife. If they're married, then the easiest path to getting her is simply to kill him. So the sister strategy allows him to maybe acquire wealth and or stall for time and allow him to escape if things get interesting. 
So the use of craft and deceit is interesting. Again, we'll see this in chapter 20 as well. There's something similar in chapter 16 and 21 with Hagar. His son Isaac will do the same thing in chapter 26. And of course, Jacob's name and lifestyle are also built on deception. So that's Abram's grandson. So this is going to be a prevalent theme throughout Genesis. One thing to say here is that, again, Abram is both a saint and a scoundrel. Uh, Whether that's coming from his pagan background, whether that's character flaws, we're not told. But again, he's very much a work in progress. And it's also interesting in light of Sarai's barrenness that if they'd had young children, the lie would have been probably prohibitively difficult to pull off. And so the barrenness is actually uh, an ally in this deceit. Now, why is he doing this? Well, you could imagine him telling himself lots of reasons to do it, rationalizations, right? He's responsible for a lot of other people. He needs to stay alive. I think the main thing to consider here is this is a really difficult situation, right? He can't just go down to Walmart and get some food. He's in a vulnerable position. He doesn't know what to do, and he's not received instructions from God here. Uh, One author named Lopate compares it to the unknown of dealing with customs agents. You don't know what you're getting into. You don't know if what you're bringing into the country is a problem. And so what do you do? And I think for us, the question is what is acceptable within tough situations with lots of unknowns? When is it appropriate to do these half measures? When is it a failure to depend on God? And when is failing to take action a matter of testing God? When does God want us to take action? And so I think it's easier said than done. Cass also notes that we're not clear on what Abram's faith is or how much he knows about God. Cass says some might say that Abram should have trusted in God to protect him, but they read with hindsight. Abram would have little reason to rely on God. God had not sent him to Egypt. For all Abram knew, God might have no power in Egypt. So I think the bottom line is we don't know. And even if it's a mistake, again, Abram is a work in progress, not a big deal. So good place to take a break. We'll see how the story ends up after the break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio, friend me there. Podcasts are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 12 today, and we've reached verses 15 and 16. Abram and company have gone to Egypt looking for food. Abram uh, decides to have Sarai describe herself as his sister to control things as best he can in that foreign and challenging culture. As a brother, he would be able to uh, field offers for Sarai as a prospective wife, and that might give him time to stall or escape, or maybe even to get some wealth, controlling the dowry. Uh, Maybe he could work something out there, but it's his strategy for dealing with the circumstance. But surprise, surprise, not only is she attractive, she's attractive to Pharaoh. Verses 15 and 16, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, manservants and maidservants, and camels. Well, it's hard to say no to Pharaoh. So uh, Pharaoh preempts Abraham's plans by taking her first in verse 15, and then paying later in verse 16. Well, at least he paid. I guess that's something. But now Abram's in a real spot, right? He's underestimated how Sarah would be sought, and there's a real dilemma on his hands. Leon Cass says either he can try to save his own life at the expense of his wife's honor, or he can risk his likely death, after which his wife will also be taken. 
thinking about God's promise of his becoming a great nation, Abram may well reason that it depends on his own survival, even more than it depends on Sarai's fidelity and marital chastity. Perhaps a matter of prudence in the face of necessity, it's a duty to keep himself alive at all costs. But whatever his motives or reasons in his choice, his priorities are clear. Abram, in his heart, willingly commits Sarai to adultery. Again, this is really difficult for us to understand in our political and religious context. I mean, you might think about a president like a pharaoh, you know, but we've got a democracy, not a dictatorship. We're civilized, more or less, rather than depraved. And Abram, again, doesn't know a ton about God, right? Where we have Jesus, the Spirit living in us, we can study the Scriptures. This is all, or most of it's new to Abram. And so that's the context of the story And so we don't want to be too harsh on Abram here either. Likewise, we're not totally sure what God thinks about all this. Was Sarai going to be taken anyway? Or does God prompt Pharaoh to take her because Abram took these steps against it? And so we're left wrestling with, again, the extent to which Abram should have taken steps versus the extent to which he should have relied on God. And the text is... Uh, powerfully, I would say, silent on the matter, getting us to wrestle with it. The last thing here is something Leon Cass offers, and again, this is pointing to the growth in Abram's faith and his development, his and his character, how he's treating his wife and the like. Cass says, in Egypt, the place of sustenance for the body, but of mortal danger for the soul, Abram's education begins. Prefiguring the experience of his descendants, who will later be enslaved in Egypt, Abram endures being a stranger in a strange land. He encounters the decadent and unjust ways of the great civilized nation, the alternative to what will become God's new way. He learns what it is like to be treated unjustly because one is a stranger. He'll later practice great hospitality in light of that. He suffers firsthand what happens when people prefer self-love to the requirements of justice. And he'll work on that in chapter 14 and in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham acquiesces in this common error, repeating it in his dealings with his own wife. So whatever's happening here and all the lessons that Abram's learning, he hasn't handled his wife as best he could have or should have, it would seem to be. And so we'll watch for that going forward. Again, he's a work in progress. He's being tutored by God and the experiences that he has in front of him. Uh, What will he do with this going forward? Verses 17 through 20, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Well, let's start with the word but in verse 17. That's a welcome word here, that there's been uh, an inflection in the story, that it's gone in a strange and unwanted direction, but the Lord, through his grace, is going to intervene here. Verse 17, now we and Pharaoh, and soon Abram in verse 18, will know this is displeasing to God. It wasn't clear before God has let free will have its way, but there is a limit to that, and God intervenes at this point. Verse 17, Sarah's name reappears here with her wife title. She was a nameless beauty to Pharaoh. She was a sister to Abram. But as God is 
uh, making things right, he connects his, her name with her title as wife. She's not just some uh, beauty or some woman to be treated like uh, cattle. She is his wife. Then the, the lie is revealed, and Abram and company are dismissed from Egypt. The first question to wrestle with here is, how did Pharaoh know the cause and effect? It's possible that Abram told him. It's possible it was revealed by God. Uh, maybe Sarai was not sick, but everyone else was. And if so, this would parallel what would later happen with the plagues in Exodus. But somehow Pharaoh is able to discern cause and effect here. Now, Pharaoh's response also is interesting. He doesn't kill Abram, and he's relatively calm and delivers a just rebuke. Pharaoh is one of the most powerful men in the world, could have done far more than this, but he holds back. Maybe he now knows Abram's God and has experienced his power through the plagues and doesn't want to mess with that. Maybe he knows that he himself was wrong in the matter, at least to some extent. But given his innocence, at least somewhat, uh, and how galling this is, that another man has tempted him to commit adultery for wealth, uh, must have been galling to Pharaoh. Or maybe he's blame-shifting. Maybe he's not so much sorry as sorry that he's been caught and punished. Now, a tough question for us to consider is, did Pharaoh actually sleep with her? Verse 19, the phrase is, took her to be my wife, and that often, if not always, implies sex. We see another reference to it in chapter 25, verse 1. Now, in chapter 20, verse 3, when this happens with Abimelech, it does not specify that he was taken to be his wife and verse 4 of chapter 20 specifies that he had not gone near her. So if we read the stories uh, in order, uh, given the promise that Abram has received, it's essential that Abimelech not sleep with her, because otherwise maybe Abimelech is the father of Isaac. But there's no such concern here. And so it, is, uh, it seems to me entirely possible that Pharaoh uh, ends up sleeping with Sarai. Now maybe God protects Sarai from this but it's not required, certainly. And we recoil at this, right? To, for the hero of the faith to put up his wife for this and that she slept with Pharaoh, I mean, that's deeply troubling to us in our morality, but, you know, again, it didn't bother Abram that much. And there are far worse sins. Again, the heroes of the faith do far worse things than this. And so I don't think we can just uh, wave it out of hand and assume this didn't happen. I think another parallel here is that often non-believers or new believers are uninformed about sexual mores, right, or other mores in the Christian life. So today, right, it's really common for non-Christians and new Christians to live together before marriage, and it doesn't occur to them that there's anything wrong here. And so again, I think we can imagine the same thing with Abraham very easily, that he doesn't see anything particularly wrong with this. Uh, he's just doing the best he can in a bad situation. It's not at all unfeasible that Pharaoh has slept with Sarai. Last thing in the text, verse 20, he gets to leave with everything he had. And we read in the next chapter, verse 2, that he was very wealthy. So Pharaoh here is wanting to wash his hands of the entire affair. Uh, maybe it's a payoff. Maybe he saw adultery as a great evil. Even when Abraham didn't necessarily see it as that big of a deal, maybe Pharaoh does. Or maybe it's restitution despite Abram's lie and not wanting to mess with Abram's God. It's ironic, if that's the case, that Abram feared for his own life, despite the promises, while Pharaoh feared God, albeit at the point of a gun, right? God's been threatening him with plagues, and so Pharaoh, Pharaoh does 
uh, fear God in a way that maybe Abram does not at this juncture. The other irony here is that everything he had may well have included Hagar from chapter 16 and 21. And so if that's the case, what a terrific illustration of the complications of sin in the long run. J. Oswald Sanders says disobedience always brings complications. And if Hagar is part of what Abram gets to bring with him, how interesting and amazing that application would be to the long-term consequences of sin. The last thing from the text, as is often the case, is what's not in the text? Who doesn't speak here? It's interesting that Pharaoh is the only one who speaks after chapter 12, verse 14. Abram doesn't say anything. Then again, what could he say? Sarai doesn't say anything. What did she think about all this? Is her recorded silence passive consent? Is she oppressed? Is she actively complicit? Did he and or she think that maybe she would bear the promised child through the princely Pharaoh? The Bible has told us in chapter 11, verse 30, that she's barren, but did they know she was barren? All they know is they don't have kids. That could be for lots of reasons. So maybe one or both of them was thinking maybe this is the way the promised child would come, the promised children would come. First Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, Peter praises her for her submission, and maybe that's part of the story here. In any case, she does not speak until things get really weird uh, and rough in chapter 16, but that's a few weeks away. Finally, note that God is silent here. God is moving. God is active. He uses Pharaoh as his instrument here, but none of this is communicated to Abram, at least in the text, and at least directly. And maybe the vagueness of this is confusing to Abram. Cass notes, Abram might harbor suspicions along these lines. He sees limits to Pharaoh's power, but it's doubtful that Abram now knows that he must honor his wife. On the contrary, he leaves Egypt a wealthy man. It has indeed gone well for him on account of Sarai. He profited from his deception. It may even seem to him that his newly acquired wealth constitutes the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promised prosperity. So we have an advantage as readers of the text to know that God's behind this. But again, it's not entirely clear, at least from the evidence in the text, what exactly Abram understands about that. All right, we have some final remarks to make about this story, but... It's good to do that after the break. So please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We've been in Genesis 12 this week, and we did a lot with verses 1 through 3 in the previous program. That, that, by the way, is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We had a little bit of uh, work to do at the beginning uh, of today's program to wrap that up. Uh, and then we did the uh, travels and the worship of Abram in verses 4 through 9. And probably the bulk of our time has been spent on the strange story in verses 10 through 20, where Abram and Sarai go to Egypt in a famine. They use a strategy to try to protect themselves, where Abram says that uh, she is her, uh, she is his sister, and uh This gets them into all kinds of trouble with Pharaoh. And so we've talked about that account at some length. So we want to wrap up in this last segment by talking through some of the lessons that we've learned, some of the things we can look at in Abram's story going forward, and some of the ways in which we can apply uh, this strange story to ourselves. We've cautioned throughout that the culture, the time, the level of faith, the development of 
Abram's faith with God, all those things are strange to us. We have to be careful not to condemn Abram, uh, not to misunderstand what's going on here, and uh, to be careful how we apply it. But there are some lessons, I think, that we can learn here. So the first thing to say here is that in pursuit of sustenance, safety, and earthly riches, Abram almost lost his wife and perhaps children, right? What would have happened to the promised children and descendants after this? He was trying to save his own skin and his own name, ironically, because God had promised him a name by risking Sarai's virtue. And I think we can conclude here that it's easier to trust God with her life and purity than it is for his own life. And I think that's one point to make for us as well. It's a lot easier for us to look at other people's lives and talk about what faith should be. But Abram's the man here. Abram's got to make decisions, and we've applauded his faith. But in this matter, he's fallen short, maybe far short. Second, Abram is to be set apart, but social. He's going to be a blessing. He's going to be blessed in order to be a blessing And that requires him to be different than, right? He's the non-Canaanite in Canaan. We talked about that in the second segment. And he's going to interact with the world, but he's still to be set apart wholly and following the great God of the Bible. So his education and growth are not simply personal. They're also social and political. And so the implications of that for us uh, hold as well, that our faith is not simply a personal thing, that our faith is not lived out in a closet, that our faith has social, political, cultural implications. And Abram has struggled with that here. And the same thing for us. If our faith is impressive at the altar of verses 4 through 9, but causes trouble out in the world, verses 10 through 20, then we've got to make some adjustments to that faith. Third, we see in Abram, and then by extension to us, that others will bear consequences of sinful decisions. Instead of being a blessing to all, Abram here brings a curse, right? The curse is only supposed to come if people curse him, but he has brought the curse on others with his misbehavior here. It's not explicit in the text, but think about the potential impact of this, the lack of faith, the materialism on Lot and his eventual failures. In the next account, we're going to be critical of Lot and talk about how he falls short in terms of faith and materialism, but what is his uncle showing him in this story? Later, we'll talk about Lot in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll be critical of his inability to withstand its influences. But what does he learn from his, uh, his uncle in all of this? And this particular story, at least, is not impressive. And so we have to look at Abram's impact on all of the people around him, not just Sarai, but Lot in particular, but all the people in his circles of influence. When we commit sins, when we fail to walk in faith, when we act like bozos in the world around us when things are difficult, it's not just on us. It has an impact on other people. And then a little more directly, this sin is going to reappear in Abram's future. He's going to do this again in Genesis 20. His son Isaac will do it in Genesis 26. Lot's going to offer his daughters as a form of hospitality, a perverse form of it in Genesis 19. Jacob's going to lie about his identity to Isaac. And 10 of Jacob's sons lie about Joseph's fate to him. So the lying, the deception, the conniving, the strategy, 
All these are things that have a, a generational consequence here. They're all also natural to the human condition, right? But a lot of this is coming from Father Abraham. Fourth point, it's interesting that in the short run, God allows a lot of free will here, a lot of messy stuff to happen. And in doing so, it serves as a test for Abram and Sarai and for Pharaoh, right? All of them have choices they can make given the circumstances that are put in front of them, that God allows free will, uh, allows all these things to happen. Many times we want God to intervene, or we say we want God to intervene to stop things. But really, when push comes to shove, we want our free will too. And from God's perspective and God's economy, it's the extension of free will that allows things to unfold, that allows us to act in faith or in disobedience. And here, Abram falls short But it is interesting that God lets it go on for quite a while. There is a limit, but God lets it go on for some time. Fifth, as we look to the long run, strange circumstances and bad decisions still work to God's ends. Romans 8, 28, all things work for good for those who love him and and follow him according to his purpose, those he predestined, etc. So there's a lot of predestination here. There's a lot of God's going to get his will done in certain ways. And God can take strange circumstances and bad decisions. And whatever this is from Abram, the extent of the lack of faith, God can still work with that. It's not an excuse to do poor things, to make decisions out of bad faith, uh, to be disobedient. But it is a recognition of God's sovereignty and that God is still in control. God's going to work things out to his ends in any case. God is delivering Abram from his mistake. It's God, not Abram. Who can preserve Sarai? God didn't let this man's foolishness, this this man's moment, ruin his plans. And I think for us as well, sometimes we beat ourselves up because we make mistakes. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of progress, not perfection. And we're going to see that with Abram, both the redemption and the progress part of this. And so, again, it's not an excuse to sin, but it is a recognition that God is in the redeeming business. That's how he rolls. Two other things of interest here. If Pharaoh had not sent Abram away, would he have been tempted to stay in Egypt? Again, the text doesn't say that, completely speculative, but it's interesting to consider that the intervention forcefully kicks Abram out of Egypt. Maybe he would have returned to the promised land anyway, but maybe this actually turned out to be necessary that once Abram makes the trip to Egypt, that he needs Pharaoh, God needs Pharaoh, to boot him out, to get him out of Egypt. The other big picture thing here is God's historical sovereignty and that this story greatly resembles Israel's departure from Egypt 430 years later. Think about the parallels here. It's started by famine. Jacob descends to Egypt as Abraham does. Pharaoh is a menacing, powerful figure. We have the theme of killing all males, We have the plagues, we have the expulsion by Pharaoh, just go, God's deliverance, the looting of Egypt, and then leaving Egypt to go to the wilderness. And that's exactly what Abram does here as well. It's as if it's anticipating deliverance of Abram's people as well. Again, big picture, the first five books of the Bible are about the law. They're about Moses and the giving of the law. They're about the Israelites. And so it's fitting that we have such great parallels and what happens in the founder of the Jewish uh, religion and the Jewish people here in the life of Abraham in chapter 12. Sixth, it's interesting to consider the timing of this. You know, we had the 
wonderful moment at the beginning of chapter 12, riveting, powerful faith of Abram. We applauded that. And then what happens? We have this immense failure. So this episode follows God's election of Abraham, Abram's initial great display of faith, and God's abundant promises. So a few points to make here. First, being the chosen is a, is a privilege, but it's also a burden, and it's a potential seduction to pride and other behaviors. And that's part of what we seem to have here with Abram. Second, the Bible does not portray its heroes as perfect. One commentator says the scripture is impartial in relating the misdeeds of the most celebrated saints, which are recorded not for our imitation, but for our admonition. There's no hint of whitewash in the coverage of the heroes of the Bible. And third, Abram is chosen, but he's also teachable. He's a work in progress. Remember we talked about Noah, who emerges as what appears to be an inherently righteous man. We don't have that problem with Abraham. We already see his flaws right off the bat here early in chapter 12. It's not that he's perfect. He's not our our model because he's inherently righteous. He's the model because of his faith and the growth that he has in his walk with God. And seventh and finally, for now, the focus is on God's instruction to Abram in terms of marriage. There's going to be work to do with Abram in terms of parenting, but there aren't any kids around yet. And maybe God's most interested in getting the marriage tightened up. We've talked about Genesis 1 through 11 as a man's world. And we've talked about the failures of uh, the various characters in the Bible, including righteous Noah, who fails in chapter 8, verses 16 and 18, to understand that God wants something different than the man's world that the flood leaves behind. Uh, But Abram's got a long ways to go, right? He's not the ideal husband, as chapter 12 makes very clear. As Cass notes, man and woman are not by nature husband and wife. Nature may, to some extent, point the way, but it is clearly insufficient. Law, custom, and instruction are everywhere needed to shape and transform the natural attractions between man and woman into the social and moral relations of husband and wife. Man and woman go together. That's obvious by nature, but not husband and wife. That's a different deal. And God is working on that here, that to requote Cass, transforming the natural attractions between man and woman into the social and moral relations of husband and wife. If you can't get the family right, and if you can't get the marriage right, you can't get the family right. If you can't get the family right, you can't get the nation right. And that's where God's going with this. And to do so, he's got to work on Abraham as a father and first before that as a husband and before that as a man of faith. Lord, help us to walk in faith as Abram does at the beginning of chapter 12 and help us to grow past our mistakes as Abram will begin to do here at the end of chapter 12. We thank you that you're a God of forgiveness, grace, and redemption. And we pray that we will walk faithfully with you, depending on you more and more in the days to come. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good to be with you today. Remember the podcast of previous episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. You can also interact with me on Facebook. Questions, comments are welcome there. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.